0: Is this thing on? Yep, there it is. Good morning. Uh, It's good to see you all here this morning. Let's go ahead and uh, uh, join together in a word of prayer, if you don't mind. Um, I feel a little... outmatched this morning um because we're trying to do a work this morning where we're going to use the scriptures to to cover everything from the fall to the advent of jesus christ in about 30 to 40 minutes and so um it's going to be tough um, but we're going to do it and we're going to ask the lord to just kind of lead us in it and so if you would just join me our god thank you so much for this morning Thank you so much for the worship that we've already had, Uh, to be able to just join together, uh, sing to you and declare our praise and worship to you, God, as the one and only one um, who is the solution to our problem, Uh, the problem of sin, the problem of death, uh, the the reality um, of its gruesome existence, God, and, and yet even though it's here, God, you have given us a way to be reconciled to you, to be redeemed, uh, and to enjoy um, the glories of Christ. And so, God, we we thank you for that. It's in view of that that we come humbly before you this morning to seek you. God, would you meet us here now as we uh, use your scripture to just kind of track your plan for redemption? um, All the way from the fall leading up to, uh, to the coming of the Savior, God, would you equip us? Would you give us understanding from your spirit? Ultimately, God, would you be praised uh, by all we do this morning. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be briefly in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, We started there uh, for a specific reason, and so we'll jump to that uh, in a little bit. But I want to go ahead and just make this note. Um, Sometimes we perceive things to be more complex, more complicated than they really are, right? Right? Uh, more complicated than, uh, than what they really are. They're actually quite simple or clear uh, in nature. So as an example, I love the game of golf. Um, I love it more than I'm good at it, but I still love it. Uh, and here's what I know about golf. Uh, you can find thousands of YouTube videos on how to swing better. I've looked at a few of them. They haven't helped me. Um, maybe they'll help you. I don't know, but they're out there, right? There's tons and tons of videos. Uh, You can read books on methods and strategies on how to score better, how to approach the game. Um, You can major in it in college. You can go to golf prep prep schools uh, if you want. If you want that to be your whole life's purpose is to be better at golf, right? The golf swing has been studied down to a science. There's actually a guy on the tour right now, and he's known as the golf scientist because his swing is fully developed based on analytics and physics, so he can tell you at what angle he's going to swing his club what that will transpire to in yardages, which is bizarre, right? He's, he's brought that whole uh, thought to the game, and it, he's actually dominating right now. So there's something about it. As a result, get, golf is, is a $70 billion industry, right? But here's what I know about golf. You know what golf is in its nature? It's kind of silly, actually. You're hitting a small white ball into a slightly larger hole in the ground. That's what golf is. Right? And we can use this uh, metaphor to carry out into any sport, right? I like basketball the same way, and you can do all the same stuff for basketball. And guess what? It, it, you're putting a ball into a hole. That, that's what it is, and that's what people commit their lives to, right? Sometimes there's just things that, even though they appear complex and complicated and big and all that kind of stuff, really, when it comes down to it, the, the core of it's pretty simple, right? And I think this plays uh, into the scriptures as well, into our faith. Right? The same is true when it comes to God's plan to heal the world of this sickness known as death, sin. Right? We see the large, scale complexities of our faith, especially from the outside looking in. And even if you're on the inside and you know God, just look at the scriptures, right? Genesis to Revelation. Just think about trying to understand the whole story of it. It feels daunting, doesn't it? It feels a little overwhelming, the study of it and the pursuit of it. And yet... Through it all is this constant strain, this simple idea, right? For golf, it's just getting the ball in the cup. That's all it is, just get the ball in the cup. When it comes to our faith, God's plan for redemption, what you need to know is this, that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that's why we start this morning with Colossians chapter 1, because if you had to bottle up Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20, in one sentence, it's this, it's all about Jesus, Right, so let's look at that briefly once again uh, to kind of help us set the tone for the day. Okay, verse fifteen of Colossians chapter one. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Right, He is the fullness of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Not that he was literally born, but that he is heir of all things as a firstborn would be, right? Everything is his. Why? Verse 16 tells us, For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Jesus Christ. Everything was created by him, for him, through him. And the only reason there's any sanity in this world is because of him. He holds all things together. Not only that, it says this, verse 18. That he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy, right? So he is in all things. Everything is created by him, for him, through it. And he proved it by being the firstborn not only just of all creation but also of death. Firstborn from among the dead, right? That doesn't mean he was the first person to die and rise from the grave, right? There was this guy named Lazarus. That Jesus brought back from the grave, but sadly for that guy, he died again. Poor guy had to die twice, right? Jesus, firstborn from among the dead, he died. Literally, he, he died. He rose from the grave three days later, and he hasn't died since, and he's not going to, right? He's alive, and he's well, right? The resurrection is a real thing. So what does this mean? It means he is supreme. He is Lord of all things. He has the supremacy, and this is what it says. Verse 19, listen to this. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Listen, that's God's plan for redemption right there. Jesus Christ is the plan, and in his supremacy, he is the only one who had the perfect life, but also such a life that he could offer his own death on behalf of all mankind and it would work, right? People ask a lot of times, well, they don't really ask this a lot, but I like this question, right? Can, can God bleed? Can God bleed? And we think, well, no, he's God. He's creator God, except Jesus is the fullness of God and he came and he poured out his blood for us so that we can know him, right? God bled out for you. And so what we need to understand at the start this morning, most crucial, is that the simple strain through all of scriptures as we navigate, we're going to navigate from the fall to God's called out people, to the law, to the prophets. But what we need to know is this, that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is the plan of redemption. And today, more than anything, is a day of decision for you. What do you believe about Jesus? Is he your redemption? Right? So that's where we're going this morning. Uh, So as we kind of make our way, we need to start back at the fall, back in Genesis chapter 3. This is where Brett was last week, and so this is where we're going to pick up. And so we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3, looking at verses 14 uh, and 15. Uh, If you haven't listened to Brett's... Sermon from last week, I would strongly encourage you to do so. It is pretty fundamental uh, in who we are as a people who believe in Jesus as Savior, and we believe that there is something innately wrong with humanity, right? So let's go back to Genesis 3, and here is where we're going to see the most tragic chapter in Scriptures. Where Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent, who is Satan, who is the devil, and he deceives them into sin. And as a result, because of their decision to disobey and to worship themselves rather than God, they inadvertently kind of curse themselves, right? So God has no need to do that, but he does do a few things. He curses the ground, and he talks about how there's going to be a relationship of toil and hardship between man and the ground, but he, and he also curses the serpent, Right, and this is what he says in his curse to the serpent, verses fourteen and fifteen. He says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, right? Deep hostility and tension and struggle, enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. So God, as Brett said last week, is calling his shot, right? The fall has happened. Sin is a part of the world now. It's, it's a reality. So what does God have to say in response? Well, he says someday there's going to be one person who comes from the offspring of woman. And he's going to come. And Satan, you and your offspring, the people who do your desires, the people who do your will, you're going to, you're going to strike his heel. But he is going to strike your head. Now I say strike again, crush gives us the idea of of what it really means, but really in the Hebrew, those are the same word for crush and strike, right? So he's going to bruise your heel, you're going to bruise his head, he's going to strike your heel, you're going to strike his head, but I like the word crush, right? You can take a hammer and hit me in the heel as hard as you want, right? And what's going to happen is it's going to stink really bad for me, I'm going to go to the hospital, I'm probably going to get a cast on my foot because there's probably a broken bone somewhere, but I'm probably not going to lose any years off my life, right? Maybe, I don't know. But if you take that same hammer and cast that same blow to my skull, it's going to be different, right? It's going to be fatal. I'm probably not going to make it through. You understand? And so I love that thought that even though Satan thinks that he's doing something against Jesus and he casts this blow, right? And we think of the cross where Satan probably for for a minute thought, okay, we, we accomplished something here. And Jesus absorbs it all and he casts the same blow, except he doesn't cast it to his heel. He casts it to his head and it is fatal. Praise God for that. There will be an end to all of this, certainly to him. And we love that. We love God's justice in that way, right? But we also love his mercy for us. Okay. So I want to go ahead and note here at the start, here at the fall in Genesis chapter 3, um, because of this, right, the fall has happened. And as a result, God gives kind of immediate hope, immediate comfort, right? At some point, this is going to be reconciled. Something's going to happen. Someone's going to come. And I love this about God. God. And I want to acknowledge it, that God is is a great worker in allowing pain and suffering to bring greater comfort and joy. Did you know that, right? If we believe in the sovereign God, who is so sovereign that he surely knew what was going to happen when he created mankind. He knew what was going to happen, didn't he? He wasn't oblivious. He's sovereign. So if he saw it coming and he still let it happen, what would be his purpose in that? And I can't pretend to speak fully on the issue, but I think part of the, part of the, the, the reason for that is because we, as, as people, are able to experience comfort and joy and, and all of that, the fullness of Jesus Christ, because he allowed such pain and suffering, right? Now, it might be a hard pill to swallow at first, but I promise you, it's, it's good, right? People ask this question all the time, why would God allow it to happen, why would he allow it to happen? And I want to go ahead and just throw this out there. Part of your answer to that question is probably going to be what you think salvation is all about, right? Because if you think salvation is simply about this, your safety and your security for eternal life, right? It's just about me. Like, God came to save me, and now I'm saved, and I'm, I'm good to go. If that's your understanding of salvation, you're going to have a really hard time ever wrestling with the reality of pain and suffering in the world. But if your understanding of salvation is that, yeah, you have eternal security. You have a, safe, uh, a safety um, net that, that's going to go through your entire eternity. And that, that's just a token of the greater thing that happens. And that's when we believe upon Jesus Christ, there is a relationship of the will. A, a relationship built upon love because he has reconciled, to, reconciled us to himself. Right? And when your salvation is built around knowing God and understanding the work of Jesus, and that you get a wonderful uh, opportunity to play a part in his um, glories, then you're going to have an easier time understanding why possibly the fall happened. Because the answer is, as we've already said, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus Christ. And I would go ahead and argue this, that God's plan for redemption is the perfect, perfect balance of opportunity and authenticity. Right? Opportunity, the most extreme um, version of that would be simply this automatic salvation, automatic redemption, or better yet, not even a need for it, because there was never any fall, there was never any sin, no death, no tree, no serpent, all of that stuff. Obviously, the opportunity would be great because it would be automatic. But would it be authentic? Would it be genuine? By that we mean your faith, your walk with Jesus Christ. Would there be a vibrancy of genuine relationship between you and your Savior? For example, we live in America, the land of opportunity, right? We're proud of that. We wear t-shirts about it, you know what I mean? Like this is kind of like one of our statements, the land of opportunity. And in this opportunity, it's pretty easy for us to call ourselves Christian, right? You can call yourself uh, a Christ follower and there's going to be virtually zero fallback for you. Right? Especially compared to other nations. It's pretty easy. The opportunity is pretty, pretty large for us here in the land of opportunity to call Christ ours. But let me ask you this. Is it possible that that very fact has damaged the authenticity of the American church? Yes. Now let me ask, let me ask you this. What would happen if through maybe political and social oppression... Even the risk of physical harm and persecution, our opportunity began to decrease significantly. What would happen to the number of people that called themselves Christ followers? It would get smaller, but it would get more authentic, right? Through which Jesus will receive more glory, James Anderson is a professor of theology and philosophy, and he says that a world with no fall and no salvation is altogether less God-glorifying than a world with a tragic fall and also a wondrous salvation. And the point of all of this is to simply say this. Maybe God allowed the pain to bring a greater comfort to us through Christ and to bring greater glory to Christ but to get there, like I said, it's a tough pill to swallow, but to get there, you have to understand that God's plan for redemption wasn't just about you. And it was never to stop with you. It's all about him. All right. Here's a few examples of this that we see at the start where God allows pain and, and immediately offers provision of comfort. And the result is praise and glory to God, not these questions. Like, God, why would you do this? Why would you allow this, right? They, they praise God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. This is what God says to the woman immediately after his curse to the serpent. He says to the woman, he said, I'm going to make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. What does that mean, right, to somebody like Eve who, did, who wasn't even born of a person, right? How could she possibly fathom what this pain's going to be like? Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. Adam, um, Adam and Eve avoided Having babies, because they were scared of the pain. That's what it says, right? No. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Right? Now, remember, Eve didn't have epidurals at that time. She had no mother telling her, you know what, this is going to hurt like crazy, and you need to be ready for this. And here's some things you can do. Eve just went into it blind, because she didn't know any better. And so I don't want us to read Genesis one and think, you know, this is like a pallet board verse that you hang up in your kitchen. You know, with God's help, I had a baby kind of thing. I think what she's saying here is this was like crazy. This hurt so bad. I don't know how I would have gotten through it if it weren't for the help of the Lord. But couldn't she have also said, you know what? God, why did you let this happen? I mean, he said to her face, I'm going to let childbearing happen. And it's going to be painful for you. She could have blamed him. She could have shook her fist at him. Why did, you, why did you cause this to be so painful? Instead, what does she do? She gives him praise. With the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. This happens again uh, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, uh, where we simply read, Cain said to his bro- brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Traditionally, we think you know maybe Cain took a rock or a branch and, and beat Abel to death right? This is the first murder, and it's the first death, right? God said to Adam, he said, You're, death is a part of your reality now, right? Uh, you, from the dust you came, from dust you will return. <sighs> Great, what does that mean? Adam has never seen death, right? Until he saw his younger son bloodied up in a mess, breathless and lifeless body with blood all around it, and he thought, oh, okay, this is the consequence of my sin. This is death, and it looks terrible, and it looks gross, and it looks disgusting. But what happens? In Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, it says this. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. She gives credit to God. Doesn't she? Again, she could have shook her fist. God, this is your doing. You allowed all this to happen. Death wasn't supposed to be part of the picture, and now it is. You let it happen. No. God has granted me another child. And it goes on to say this, verse 26, that Seth had a son named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord, right? At that time, when the fall is starting to be experienced full, right? Childbirth, the first murder, the first death, and it's like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? This is our reality now, And at that time, what did they do? What did they let all the pain and suffering and the reality of the fall do? They didn't shake their fists at God. What they said is that they started to call on the name of the Lord. Man, we can learn so much from this, can't we? That in our pain and in our suffering, instead of sprinting away from God and blaming him... For everything, to acknowledge that all of this stuff is a reality. However you cut it, it's a reality that we are fallen, that we are broken, that this world is sinful. But listen, he gives us hope. He helps us in it. He provides comfort. He gives compassion. And he has made a plan for redemption for you and me through Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. What is that plan? We start at the fall. Let's move now um, to his people. Remember, it's all about Jesus. But uh, at the dawn of scriptures, uh, as early as Genesis 12, uh, we read where God kind of sees Abraham and he sees his faithfulness. and, And God in his sovereignty decides, these are going to be my people, people who come from Abram. Right? So let's read Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Excuse me. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country. Your people and your father's household to the land, I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Right? So God sees Abraham's faithfulness, and he says, you know what? These are going to be my people somehow through you. All nations are going to be blessed. Wouldn't you like that promise from the Lord? Like he sees you and he says, hey, I see you, I see your little tribe, I see your little family. And I just want you to know that every nation, all peoples in all the world, they're going to be blessed through your line. They're going to be blessed through you. What a promise, right? So in Genesis 17, God establishes this promise with Abram. And he changes his name to Abraham. Abraham, and then he gives to Abraham and his descendants this physical marker of circumcision as a sign of this covenant, right? Circumcision uh, becomes a pretty big hang-up in the New Testament, but this was its purpose, to to call them out, to to identify them as called-out people for the Lord. These are God's covenant people, the people that God has promised himself to. Now, this promised line, this covenantal line, it continues from Abraham to his son Isaac. And then from Isaac to his son Jacob, who God renames Israel, right? And then that promised line, that covenantal line goes from Israel to Israel's 12 sons, who are the 12 tribes of Israel. These are God's people. These are God's holy nation, God's called out people. Why did he do this as a part of his plan of reconciliation for humanity? There's a lot of ways we can cut this. First of all, I dislike the fact that God gave these people an identity, right? He called them out for himself. So they're living for something bigger than themselves, something divine. And as a result of that identity, they have community with one another, that they're able to do it together to strengthen each other, to encourage one another. And that community uh, uh, continues today, right? We are here for a reason. We are here in the community of Jesus Christ. And we're here because we understand, right, that we can't do this alone. We need each other. Now, another graceful reason why this is part of God's plan of reconciliation is this idea of contrast. Right? It was actually uh, God's grace to the world that God would call out a people and bring contrast to the world. Right? This place that is dark and all of a sudden there's this body of people who are rising up and they are called out by God and they're living for something greater than themselves and they have a, a just kind of a written code among them of, of grace and love and, and pursuit of something greater and it's contrast, right? People on the outside are able to look on the inside and think, man, there's something going on there. It gives people something to compare themselves to, right? And this also continues in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says what? That we are to be salt, right? That we are to be light in this world. Our job as believers in Jesus Christ is to do the same thing, to bring contrast, right? People should look on the outside and see, see a saltiness, something that preserves this world, right? They, they see light, something that shines in the darkness, something that's appealing, something that's good, Ultimately, the reason God called out these people was to make an entry point for the Messiah. Because from these people, the Messiah is going to come. And through him, everyone in the nations, all the world, will be blessed. Jews and Gentiles alike will be blessed. They may be saved, saved through Jesus Christ. Right? This is what the covenant that God made with Abraham meant when he said, all people on earth will be blessed through you. Right? That's what he said back in Galatians. But listen to this in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. The apostle Paul says this, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham, that all nations will be blessed through you. So Paul is able to take that line from God's promise to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. And what does the Apostle Paul call it? The gospel. He calls it the gospel because he understands that all nations will be blessed through you. This person who's going to come from your line, who is Jesus Christ, through whom Jews and Gentiles, all people can be saved. And the world will be blessed. And listen, that's what's crazy, is that even though he called out his people, the 12 tribes of Israel, through Jesus Christ, we are also part of his called out people. Look at this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you weren't a people, and now you are. Once you didn't have mercy, and now you do. Right? Listen, he's not talking to just the 12 tribes of Israel here. He's talking to the New Testament church. Listen, you and I, somehow in God's grace, he's made a way for us through Jesus Christ to be a part of his called out people. That's why he did it. That's why it was part of his plan of redemption. Okay, and this brings us to his law. His law. Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. Anybody getting worn out of the scripture passage references here? I'm sorry, but I'm, actually, um, I'm not actually sorry either. So Galatians chapter 3, this is what we're about, right? We're about the word. Uh, verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? Listen to this. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? Here's what it means. The 430 years there that's mentioned is from the beginning of the captivity of the Israelites to the incorporation of the law, right? I told you about Abraham, how his promise line went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, who's renamed Israel, and then to Israel's 12 sons, who are the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, about that time, they had to move to Egypt, all of God's people, because of a famine in the land. And they moved to Egypt, and they did not find favor with the Pharaoh. Rather, they were enslaved. For 400 years, God's people were enslaved under a pagan society and a pagan ruler and a pagan religious system for 400 years. So 430 years is from the, the, the start of their captivity all the way to the point where God, Moses brings them out of Egypt and then gives them the law. 430 years between those two times, right? Right? And it goes on to talk about how the law doesn't set aside the promises and covenant from God to his people. Rather, the law points the people to the seed, who is Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of the promise. That's Jesus. Now let's define the law. The law is essentially the full spectrum of regulations and practices found in the first five books of the Bible, which we know as the Torah, which means the law. Right? So anything you read in there, it's the law. It includes the Ten Commandments. The sacrificial system, the dietary laws, the social laws, the religious laws. It was essentially their way of living. It was their way of life. And it plays a huge part in the story of the scriptures. Why? Why is it part of God's plan for redemption? Well, first, this. How good do you think the Israelites' pursuit and worship of God was after 400 years of being totally, like, separated from it? Probably not great, right? They were displaced for 400 years. And so we look at the law in our kind of pampered New Testament uh, American church days, and, and we think, well, God was so strict, and God was so rigid, and why would he do this, right? And we think of him as this micromanaging dictator. But if you bring it into context, you know what God is in the law? He is a loving and gracious Father. Because he had this infant nation who had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea what they were doing, and so what God does is he gives them very specific ways to worship and to live, right? How many of you guys have like a three-year-old to like a five-year-old, like one-year-old to a five-year-old, right? Like you have to be very specific about what you're asking of them, right? You have to tell them not to put their finger in the outlet. It's not rigid. It's just for their safety and their good, but you don't have to tell, you know, a 30-year-old man that because he already knows, we are more specific. We're more rigid in our laws to our children for their safety, for their good. That's what good fathers do. They give boundaries, right? This is what he was doing. This is what he was doing. So he gives them a way to worship. He gives them a way to pursue him. More importantly, he reveals sin through the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin, right? The nature of the law is that it brings condemnation and judgment, not that it brings reward. You understand that? The law is kind of just like base level, like this is obviously what you're supposed to do. It's the law. You don't get rewarded for doing what you're supposed to do, but you do get creamed when you act outside of it, correct? For example, I heard this from another pastor. Have you ever been pulled over uh, by a cop? And he pulls you over, and he asks for your license and registration, and he says, you know what? We've been trying to find you for a long time uh, because your driving record is so good. We've noticed that every time the, uh, the speeding limit is 30, you go 29. Uh, every time it's 50, you go 50 or under. You just, you're just a great driver, and so instead of giving you a ticket, I'm going to give you a check for $200. Keep it up. Anybody ever had that experience? No, right? Because the law wasn't meant for that. Now, if you're blazing, going 70 through a 50, what's going to happen? You're going to get creamed for it. It's going to happen if you get caught, of course, but hopefully you're not doing that. You're going to get creamed for it. That's the nature of the law, right? It reveals when you're acting outside of something and whatever that is, is sin, right? Galatians 3.10 says that everyone is cursed who does not do everything in the book of the law and my guess is this, if you're like me, not one person has ever done everything in the book of the law, and that's the nature of it, is you can't. You can't, and you won't ever be able to do so. And as a result, the law, the law points us to our sin. It makes us conscious of our sin, and then it points us to the one who can save us and justify us. It points to Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. The law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Put simply, the law had us locked up until Christ offered justification by faith. Why did he offer justification by faith? Because until then, there was only the hope of justification by works, and we know that that won't get you anywhere. Hebrews says that that the the sacrifice of, of bulls and goats and that kind of stuff, it only worked to clean the outside for just a little bit of time. It didn't work to do anything eternal only the justification that comes by faith in Jesus Christ can 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 bring a once for all payment for sin so that you can know him fully and freely you cannot be justified by the things you do you cannot do it it's never been the case right And God's people were notorious for this. They tried over and over and over to do things by their own works. And it seemed like they were either being over-religious or that they were being completely rebellious. And that's what brings us to his prophets. We looked at um, his people. We looked at his law. Lastly, we're going to look at his prophets. The message of his prophets. Now, almost the entirety of the Old Testament was written by people known as prophets, right? The first five books written by the prophet Moses. Uh, many of the historical books, the poetic books, they were also written by prophets who doubled as kings and so on, right? And then a large portion of the Old Testament is actually prophetic in nature, which means this. There was a man who was given a specific uh, a word from the Lord that he was car- to carry out to a particular nation or people most of the time. It was God speaking through a man to his rebellious people who were living in rebellion against him. But other times he also used people to speak to other nations, right? He, he did that. But that's the nature of prophecy. And here, here's the pattern that goes when you read through the prophetic books. First of all, you're always going to see this. You're going to see a recognition of sin. Part of the prophet's task was to go to God's people or whoever the people were and acknowledge their sin, You're sinners, right? Basically to acknowledge the fall. Did you know that there was a time in Israelite history where they were burning their own babies to worship another God? And that's why so many prophets come and they start creaming these people for living in such rebellion against God. These are God's called out people and they're living in in total apathy to God. So there's a recognition of sin, but there's also this process of repentance and returning, where the prophet would say, come and and be broken about your sin. He would call them to a broken and contrite heart and spirit to understand their sin, but not only that, but to return to the Lord, right? And that's interesting to note, because a lot of times we repent, but we never return. You know what I mean? Anybody in here, we asked this question in the college group just a little earlier. Anybody in here had to ask for repentance multiple times for the same thing this week? Nobody's honest in here, are you? You can nod yes. Maybe over the course of the last few months, you keep asking repentance for the same thing over and over and over again? Is it possible that you've asked for repentance, but you've never actually turned? You've, actually, you've never actually returned to God? Right? Right? When we ask for repentance for something, when we say, God, I've done this thing against you, and and I'm sorry, and I need to to repent of this. You know what he's immediately going to call you to do? To change your life in some way that fosters that repentance. That's what he's going to do. God, I'm sorry for looking at that thing. I'm I'm sorry, right? What do you think is going to happen if there's ever any turning away from it? You're going to be saying the same thing the next day and the next day and the next day, unless... You start to repent and acknowledge that thing before the Lord. And then you start filling it with something different in your life. You start living a different way. You start taking active strides against that thing that you keep asking over and over again for repentance from. Lastly is restoration. So the prophets spoke uh, recognition of sin, repentance and returning, but then restoration. That you would be restored in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And by the way, or in God, but isn't this the essence of the gospel? To recognize your sin, that you're part of the fall, you're part of the problem. To repent and then to turn to the one who can save you. And there you will find restoration and hope and peace. Right? Redemption. Redemption. Now, there's a lot of reasons why the prophets are part of God's plan of reconciliation. And it's largely because of their message. So here's two things. First of all, they taught God's justice and mercy, both of which are crucial for gospel understanding, right? God's going to bring justice through Jesus Christ upon the one who deceived us all into sin. And we praise God for justice. But if justice was only by itself and there was no such thing as mercy, we'd all be dead already. But it also teaches us mercy. That those of us who are part of the fall, we are part of the problem, but we acknowledge it and we repent of it, then we can receive mercy through Jesus Christ. The prophets' message teach this. And in doing so, they point everyone to the Messiah. They produce this longing for their listeners, right? If you talk to any Orthodox Jew today, they don't believe in the New Testament, but they believe in the Old Testament. And guess what they're waiting for? A Messiah, because the Old Testament, from the start of it to the end of it, it's pointing to someone who's going to come and restore their people. They're waiting on the Messiah. But listen to this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-12. through 12. Concerning the salvation that we have through Jesus, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care I hope you understand what he's saying there, that the message of the prophets, first of all, they they were peeking into this salvation that would come through the Messiah. And it says that they searched intently and with greatest care. They wanted to know about this one who was going to come. Not only that, but at some point God revealed it to them that they weren't just serving themselves and the people they were writing to. You know who they were writing to? To you, to me. This message of the gospel of repentance and returning and of restoration. The prophets wrote about this. It even says that angels long to look into these things. Prophets were looking ahead and they were building the expectation for, uh, for the coming of the Messiah. Even the angels look into it. You think about that? These celestial beings on the outside who are looking at God's crazy love for us and thinking, What is going on here? They want to know what is going on. This salvation that we have, the Messiah, and the work that he does, it is perplexing to them because it's that crazy, right? We're saying a scandal of grace. What truly is that? Now, listen, we've successfully scratched the surface of the story of the scriptures, God's plan to make a way. But listen, like I said, the point is singular, and it's all about Jesus. So what does this mean for us today? Well, first of all, it means this, and I deeply want you to know this, that God has an answer for sin. He has a counterattack to sin and death, and his name is Jesus. And today, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray a few things for you today. That you would recognize your fallen state; You're part of the problem. I am too. We are part of the problem. We are sinful. We are broken. But that also you would understand that Jesus is the only answer. You can't be the answer to your own salvation. You can't do it. You're the problem. You need some outside force to be the answer. You need Jesus Christ. The span of human history pointed to him. Everything in this book points to him. And it points to him so that you may know him. And I pray that you would make Lord make him Lord of your life today, that you would finally give your life to him. Quit wrestling with it. Quit struggling with it. Quit letting things like the fall get in the way of it and understand that he has given you love and compassion and hope. And he's done something crazy so that you can know him in the death of his son. Relinquish your will to that and let him be Lord of your life today. Secondly, I want you to know this. God doesn't only have an answer for sin, but he has an answer for pain and suffering. God allows grief to happen for divine purposes. And for the believer, every place of pain and suffering doubles as a place to grow and deepen in your relationship with Christ. And I want to tell you this, even if your suffering leads to your death, praise God for the hope of redemption that's been purchased for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing can get you. Death has no power. Pain is repurposed for your Uh, strengthening in the faith and suffering brings you even closer to Christ. Listen, there's no other faith system, system, there's no other spiritual leader that has such a beautiful answer to pain and suffering. Thirdly, listen to this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, the plan is not over. The plan does not end with you. And I'm going to say it again, and I'm sorry if it grates against you a little bit. But God's salvation, his plan for salvation, was more about Jesus than it was about you. That doesn't negate the fact that we have a wonderful opportunity to know him and to be with him for all eternity. But listen, it's about him. And here's why I say this. People who think that their salvation is only about their own safety and security and eternity, they tend to live that way in life now, don't they? Safe, secure, No kind of conscious awareness of any spiritual purpose or passion or risk because salvation was just about them. And so they're safe. They're good to go. What's more to do, right? They think God's plan of redemption ends with them. But listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the plan was not to end with you but to continue through you. It is the mission of the church to share Christ with others, to live overtly for him so that others may know him. That's what you've been called to. That's your mission. And listen, we're going to go into a time of prayer and worship. And as we do, if you're a believer in Christ, that's really the singular thought that I want you to wrestle with this morning. Are you an active participant in God's plan? Are you actively continuing God's plan of redemption to other people who desperately need it? And if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then we're going to pray. And during this time, I just, I feel like we, we need to offer something to you. I want to strongly encourage you to take God at his word and to give your life to him today. To acknowledge your sin to him, to ask for his forgiveness, to ask him to be Lord of your life. It's a relinquishing of your will to his and letting him repurpose your life for him. Would you make that decision today? Listen, I've been in the seat that you're in, and I've been there, and I, I remember the unravelings in the heart, the unsettling feeling that I had as the Lord was clearly telling me to do something. And over and over and over again, I remember sitting in that seat, receiving from the Lord what I knew was a call to obedience to him, and I sat there and wrestled with it and did nothing, and I walked out of the room unchanged. I did it over and over and over again. And I want to encourage you this morning that if that's you, to not let that be you. To to take God's lead, that unsettling feeling in your spirit, and understand that he's drawing you in, he's speaking to you. And listen, for some people, they just need something tangible. So I want to offer you this. We're going to go into a time of prayer and a time of worship. And during that time of prayer, if that's you, if you feel the Lord drawing you in, then I want you to make that decision today. And what I want you to do is to get out of your seat during the, during the prayer time and to go through those doors back there and then the first door on your right, it's super easy to find. There's a prayer room and there's going to be people in there. And what they're going to do is be ready to pray with you, to lead you to Jesus. Um, so you'll know forever that October 21st, 2018, I made Lord Jesus the Lord of my life because you got out of your seat and you went back there. Understanding salvation is a matter of belief. It's a matter of trust in him. But would you do that today? If that's you, would you make that decision? Would you act upon it this morning? We invite you to that. Let's pray. Father, we are totally humbled by your love for us. God, we understand that we are a part of the problem. The fact that you would... Be our answer. The fact that you would do something so extreme so that we can know you and have uh, salvation in the blood of Jesus Christ, God, it's just, it's, it's overwhelming. God, we're grateful for your plan to save us. God, I ask, first of all, for the believers in this room, anybody who's been living, declaring your name. But, God, they've just been living like the plan for redemption has stopped with them as if they were the singular point of it all. And, God, I pray that you would break them of that, that you would reignite a mission and purpose in their lives that lets them continue your plan of redemption to others who desperately need it. God, would you put us on that? But, God, I also pray for anybody in this room who's unsettled in their spirit right now because they know They know that they are a part of the problem. They know they need something outside to fix it. And God, they've experienced uh, the word of your son now. And God, I just pray in this moment of decision that you would let them uh, decide in their hearts to make you lord of their lives. God, that they would acknowledge their sin and repent of it before you. And then that they would turn to you in all things. And, God, that you would immediately give them the hope and assurance of the restoration that you have for them that begins now and will carry on into eternity. God, would you do this work among us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is your time. Like I said, all me and a few others will be in the back. Um, We'd love to pray with you to help you in this decision to follow Christ with your life. Uh, And you believers, please consider the one thought that we have for you. The plan doesn't stop with you. It is to continue with you. So this is your time. Uh, Use it as you see fit.
1: we're grateful, Lord, for your love and that you are a good, good father. God, that your ways are perfect. God, I ask you to be with us now as we go our separate ways, that we would live called out for you, God, that we would be encouraged by your word today and that we'd leave here changed, more in love with you and who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for joining us this morning. Go with Christ. You're dismissed.